Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, it is Wednesday afternoon. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day. And of course, you know what that means. That means uh, it's only two days until Black Friday, right? The one day of the year where Americans make their annual pilgrimage, where they stampede to the nearest mall to buy stuff that they really don't need and certainly can't afford, and they go deep into debt in order to buy it. Although, you know, now the Black Friday's events are actually starting on Thursday. It's almost like an entire Black uh, black weekend or maybe black and blue uh, based on the bruises that people might pick up as they bump into one another uh, trying to buy a you know flat-screen television set for $99. Although... I believe, and based on all the even anecdotal evidence, and I've been talking about this for a while, that this is going to be a pretty weak uh, holiday shopping season. I bet the weakness begins uh, with Black Friday, and that would include the Internet version, Cyber Monday. I think by the time we get the sales numbers next week, uh, it's going to be pretty dismal as far as what the retailers were able to rack up uh, from their overly indebted, underemployed, uh, customer base here in the United States. And I'm going to get back to this topic of uh, of consumer spending and Black Friday a little bit later in this podcast, because I really want to get into a lot of the economic news that came out so far this week. A lot of it is going to relate to consumer spending, and then we'll bring that back uh, to uh, Black Friday and, and all that. But I, I really want to get started, too, by talking about the news that drove the euro down this morning. Again, more rhetoric coming out of Mario Draghi, the head of the European Central Bank, designed to drive down the euro, talking about expanding the QE program, making it even bigger, including what, I, I don't know, a two tiered uh, system. I mean, whatever he's talking about, he's trying to get the markets to think that they're going to go even bigger. Right. Even though they have very easy monetary policy, we're going to ease it up even more. 
right? We have negative interest rates, but they're not negative enough. And why is it that Mario Draghi is so determined to talk down the euro and to talk up inflation? And it's because he is in pursuit of the holy grail of uh, Keynesian economics, modern Keynesian economics, inflation, right? If only, if only we can succeed in increasing the cost of living at a faster pace than it is currently rising, then we can create prosperity, right? This is the modern day thinking that if we can just get the cost of food to go up a little bit faster, if we can just have the cost of shelter to go up a little bit faster, if we can just get the cost of energy to go up a little bit more, we can get the cost of health care, clothing, education. If we could just get all the bills that the average European gets or incurs every day, every month, if we can just get those bills to go up a little bit quicker, right, a little bit faster, if we could just make life a little bit more expensive for everybody across the board, then it's going to be fantastic. Then everything's going to be great. We're going to have more economic growth. We're going to have more employment. Everything's going to be great if we could just get prices to rise a little bit faster. Not too much faster, mind you, just a little bit faster. And we're willing to do anything, whatever it takes, even imposing negative interest rates on depositors, which, you know, you would think that if consumers are having a, a tough time, if you start charging them for their bank accounts, I mean, is it just, just, just going to add to the problem if now they have to pay for something that at least used to be free or, in fact, used to pay them, right? If you used to, you used to be able to earn interest on your bank deposits, now they're talking about not only getting no interest, but having to write your bank a check for having a bank account, somehow that's not going to have any negative effect. And of course, believing that a rising cost of living is you know, the secret sauce of economic growth, right? If you believe that, then the corollary is what's holding back prosperity is that prices are not rising fast enough, right? That, that this is the biggest problem, that because food or energy or shelter or or, or clothing or education or healthcare, because these costs are rising too slowly, it's screwing up everything. Like these people are sitting around in France and what's really worrying them and bothering them, it's not so much the terrorist attacks, it's that they're, they're, you know, the latte that they're sipping is, is not expensive enough. Or they, they just bought a baguette and it's only a little bit more expensive than the baguette they bought last year. And they're just thinking, you know, I wish this thing could cost even more. If it could just be 2% more expensive as opposed to 1%, my life would be so much better. Everything would be better if only the cost of this piece of bread was higher or, or the sauce uh, that, that, that is going to be on my, you know, on my meal. If I could just get this. I mean, this, th th does anybody believe this? But of course, you know, you look at all the stories, look at all the articles, search the Internet for all the articles today about the ECB and about inflation. And nobody is critical. Nobody points out the, the lunacy of this, all of this, simply to get the CPI to rise a little bit faster then it's already rising. It's not even falling. It's rising just slowly. And these clowns are saying, we just want to make it rise a little bit faster. You know, why don't they just do this? Why don't they just impose a tax? Why don't they just increase the VAT? If they think it's so important that prices be higher, well, just raise the VAT. It's real simple. Why do it this roundabout way? Why do it by 
printing a bunch of money, buying a bunch of government bonds. If your real goal is to get consumers to spend more money when they buy stuff, just increase the VAT. You can increase the VAT a little bit every year, and presto, you got exactly the amount of inflation that you want if your real goal is to raise prices. But you see, that's not really their goal. Because if it was their goal, they would just raise the VAT. See, their real goal is to wipe out debt. Their real goal is to lower real wages. But they can't come out and say that, so they got to make up this nonsense. But the problem is, everybody lets them get away with it. Academia lets them get away with it. All the journalists let them get get away with it. Nobody calls out the central bankers on the ridiculous nature of what they're asserting. That prosperity comes from making things more expensive when it's actually the reverse. Prosperity comes from reducing costs. That's where standard livings grow. It's when the things that you need, when the things that you want become less expensive and therefore more affordable. Since nobody has an unlimited amount of money, your consumption is limited by your income. And what can help your income grow is your cost of living going down. As things get cheaper, you can buy more stuff. And things that you couldn't afford become affordable. Like, you know, I always use the example of of cell phones. Cell phones used to be very expensive and only the rich people were able to buy them. Now, everybody, even poor people, you know, you, you get your free Obama phone, but anybody can afford a cell phone nowadays, right? Uh, yet, at one point, it was the privilege of, of, of the very few, not even the 1%. I mean, even the 1% of the 1% initially had cell phones. But they're so ubiquitous now because the price went down. And if the price had gone up, if the first cell phone had been the cheapest cell phone and the price had just gone up, Even if it only went up 2% a year, nobody would own cell phones. Everybody owns them because the price went down. And the same thing is true for everything in the economy. Falling prices is what lifts standards of living. It's what really increases demand. And falling prices result from a productive economy. That's what happens. Inflation results from government, government meddling, government interference. And it doesn't make things better. It only makes things worse. Speaking about making things worse, let's go back and go over the economic data that has come out thus far this week. It's been a mixed bag, but most of it, I believe, has been negative. Even the stuff that's positive, if you look you know, beneath the surface, you realize that there's actually a lot of negatives in what is being purported to be positive news. But on Monday, we did get the manufacturing PMI number, which was supposed to come out at 545 which would have been an improvement on the September number of 54. Instead, we got 52.6, and that was the lowest number in two years uh, for manufacturing. And I've been talking about this uh, a long time on the podcast. The manufacturing recession is already here. And, you know, the mainstream will acknowledge this, but they don't, they don't even think it matters. They think that, well, manufacturing is so small a part of the economy that it doesn't really matter, which, of course, that statement says so much because admitting that it's such a small part of the economy, that's part of the problem. It can't be a small part of the economy. The fact that it is a small part of the economy is a problem in and of itself. But then to say, well, because it's so small, it doesn't matter. Look, a lot of these service sector jobs only exist because of the manufacturing jobs that make it possible. And I think we're getting the turn down now in manufacturing. We're going to be getting the turn down later in the service sector. And you know, certainly that is being validated by a lot of other numbers that have come out uh, recently, not just this week, uh, but over the last several weeks 
and, and several months. You know, we also got existing home sales that came out on Monday. We got new home sales today, but the existing home sales came out on Monday and they were below estimates. Uh, and, and so, again, I've been pointing out that this housing market, there's also plenty of evidence that the housing market is already rolled over. And if the Fed were to raise interest rates, well, it's just going to push it over, you know, down the hill that much quicker. But I think the big number that came out yesterday was the revision to third quarter GDP. And initially, the government reported that GDP was up 1.5%. And everybody was expecting an upward revision. And that is exactly what we got. In fact, they were expecting an upward revision to 2.1. And that's what we got. We got 2.1, right? Hey, good news, right? It's reported. This is good news. The economy was stronger than was originally estimated. Well, the problem is, why was it 2.1? Well, the reason was because there was a big build in inventory. I've been talking about this for months on this podcast. We have huge amounts of unsold inventory piling up on the shelves. And this is because businesses have been more optimistic than they should have been. Thanks to the Fed and all this rhetoric about a recovery, we have caused businesses to make the mistake of buying too much inventory. And of course, that mistake shows up as a positive for the GDP because all these, this, all, all the stuff they ordered is in the GDP. In fact, if businesses had not made this mistake, had we not gotten the big jump in inventory, instead of 2.1 for the third quarter, we would have had 1.2. And that is a huge difference. The other big factor that kind of renders the number meaningless anyway, is that the government assumes that inflation is just 1.3% on an annualized basis. And I don't believe that for a second. I mean, just if you look at health insurance alone, these prices are rising so rapidly that I'm sure the average American's cost of living is up by more than 2% just on healthcare. You know, even if you don't even count what he's paying extra for everything else, just the increase, because people's health insurance are going up 10%, 20% in a year. I mean, huge numbers. To say that the entire consumer price that we pay is up 1.3%, but of course, that's what the government assumes. But you know what happened today, and probably as a result of more bad economic news that I will get into, but the Atlanta Fed just reduced their estimate from fourth quarter GDP from 2.3%, down to 1.8%. So what the third quarter giveth, the fourth quarter taketh away already, and nobody seems to care. And again, this number could still be too optimistic based on a lot of the other data that has been coming out. But now we're looking again at fourth quarter GDP at 1.8, according to Atlanta Fed. And of course, the consensus is still around, I don't know, 2.8 or something like that. I mean, they're up, in, they're, they're up in the nosebleed territory. I mean, of course, the consensus is going to gradually be reduced, which is always the case. They always start off overly optimistic, and then they gradually ratchet down their expectations. And sometimes if they ratchet them down enough, then they can actually surprise to the upside, and they can say, oh, look, the numbers were better than we thought, but they were only better than they thought recently, not better than they thought you know, months ago when, when they first started thinking about it. But also buried in that GDP report were some other very bad numbers. For example, there was a 4.7% decline in corporate profits during the quarter. 
That is the biggest decline in corporate profits since 2009. Now, think about this. Corporate profits are plunging and inventories are exploding because customers aren't buying. So sales are down. Profits are down. What does that tell you is coming with respect to layoffs? Right. If companies aren't profitable and their customers aren't buying their products, they don't need all these workers. They have to cut costs somehow. And so layoffs are coming. And in fact, even though we got the weekly jobless claims that came out today that were you know, relatively low, another low number in weekly jobless claims, I think down 11,000 to 260,000, the continuing claims continue to rise. And they're now at, I think, a a, a two-month high as far as continuing claims uh, for unemployment. So that is a disturbing, disturbing trend that you would think if the Fed really was data-dependent, they would be cognizant of in that, wait a minute, maybe these uh, employment trends are starting to reverse. And the weakness in corporate profits and the, the weakness in consumer spending, retail sales, all of that should be a pretty good indicator that that is coming. Now, we also got the consumer confidence numbers for November that came out yesterday, and they were expecting 99.6. Instead, we got 90.4. That's almost 10% below the expectations. This was the lowest level for consumer confidence in 14 months, 14 months. And, you know, the Fed is just getting ready to raise rates because the economy is supposedly finally ready for it. Yet consumer confidence is at a 14 month low. Consumers were a lot more confident 14 months ago, right, when the Fed said they couldn't raise rates. But now they're saying everything is perfect. We're going to raise rates. And they're getting economic data that would suggest that they should be doing the opposite if you buy into their, you know, their their Keynesian playbook. Also, the Richmond Fed manufacturing index came out yesterday. Last month uh, was minus one. They were expecting it to improve to plus one. And instead, we got minus three. So not only didn't it get better, it got worse. This is the third month in a row that it's declined. And if you look at the decline in wages, which is a component of this survey, uh, wages saw the biggest drop in four years. And remember, Janet Yellen, data-dependent Yellen, is saying that some of the data she wants to see is wage growth. Well, if you look at the economic news that's coming out, we're not getting the wage growth. But the data that came out today that really caused probably Atlanta Fed to ratchet down their estimate for GDP was the personal income and spending numbers. And personal income did rise by four-tenths of a percent, which was in line with, uh, with expectations. But personal spending was supposed to rise 0.3. Instead, it only rose by 0.1. And that actually drove the savings rate up to about a three-year high. Now, of course, though, when we talk about the savings rate in the United States, it's not like Americans have a big stack of savings. We're just talking about money that they earned that they didn't spend, right? It doesn't necessarily mean they took that money and put it in a savings account. They just didn't spend it, right? And what did they do with it? Well, maybe they, maybe they paid off some of their credit cards, which technically is saving, right? Because you have less debt than before you paid down your credit card bill. But it's not like... You know, Americans are flush sitting on a pile of savings. They're not. I think they're finally at the point 
where they can't spend as much as they used to because they have so much debt. And so maybe they have to use some of that money to pay down some of that debt or maybe have a little bit of a cushion because they've maxed out all their credit cards already. And they, maybe they do need to have a little bit uh, so that they, they have the, because they can't use their credit cards. I don't know, but it's not like Americans have a lot of savings. Now, we need more savings, and that would be good news, except the Fed and everybody else are counting on consumers to spend because 70% of our GDP is comprised of consumer spending. And we don't care how we get the money, right? Beg, borrow, or steal, as long as they spend it. And the fact that uh, spending is up, you know, so minorly leading up to the holidays, this is going to be a concern. You know, I was watching the one of the, one of the football games over the weekend, and there was a commercial for GM. My GM had a commercial for one of their trucks uh, that they were selling. And the commercial, you maybe seen this commercial. It starts off, this one guy shows up and he tells his buddy, oh, I just saved hundreds of dollars. You know, I camped out in front of a department store and, you know, I saved hundreds of dollars. And the other guy, you know, he's all refreshed. You know, he didn't camp out anywhere. He slept in a comfortable bed. And he tells us from, oh, you know, I slept in, but I saved thousands. I saved thousands. And his buddy is like, dumb, how did you save thousands? And he points to this brand new GMC truck that he just bought. And he saved thousands of dollars by buying a new truck, right? And how did he actually save the thousands of dollars? And this is what the ad advertised, 15% cash back. 15%. Now, this is a $50,000 truck, right? And so they actually flashed on the commercial, like the $7,500, you know, approximately, that you were going to get cash back. Cash back. And it seemed to me that more than selling the truck, they were selling the $7,500. It was really an advertisement for a loan. It's it, it, Except to qualify for the loan, you had to buy this truck. But if you bought this truck... You got the $7,500. See, normally you buy a new car, you, you, you leave the showroom with less money in your pocket than when you showed up because now, you know, you're driving out a new car. But based on this, you can actually walk into the dealership with empty pockets and drive out in a brand new car with $7,500 in your pocket to now go out and spend on, on Christmas presents. And it occurs to me that if you really need a $7,500 loan, if you're in such bad shape that you want that 7500 bucks, does it really make sense to buy a $50,000 car so you can have $7,500? I mean, if you're in so much trouble that you need 7500 bucks, the last thing you should do is buy a brand new $50,000 car. And of course, the car itself, it only applies to the 2015 model, which they're trying to get rid of, right? The minute you drive this car off the lot, it's probably lost 20% of its value. So your net worth is down, right? This is a terrible way to get a $7,500 loan by committing yourself uh, to making the payments on a, a $50,000 truck. I mean, if you really need the $7,500, just go out and borrow that money. You know, don't take on the burden of a, a $50,000 truck. But this is what's going on in America. And what makes all this possible? Well, because GMAC, you know, they can turn around and flip this loan to the U.S. government that's going to buy this securitized loan with 0% interest rates. And they're going to make a bunch of money. We say, how are they making money giving somebody 15% cash back? What are the margins on these cars? 
because the dealership doesn't even make 15% profit. That's how ridiculous it is. I think a lot of it has to do with the value of the payment stream that they're selling in a 0% interest rate environment. They're actually making money selling the loan, even though they had to pay 15%. And of course, they're trying to unload some of their 2015 inventory to make room for the 2016 inventory. But this is, this is typical American nonsense. You know, go out and Buy a car, cost you nothing, 0% financing, and here's a check for $7,500, uh, and you, you just leave with that money. Now, while I'm on the subject of uh, Good Friday, Christmas shopping, uh, which again, you know, it epitomizes everything that's wrong with America. In fact, even Barack Obama, you know, he was, I, he, I guess he was talking today, trying to uh, get Americans not to worry about terrorists that don't worry you know you can go out to the malls you can go out and shop uh don't stay home and and, and you know and because you're worried about a terrorist attack like you know what happened in france or you know nothing's gonna happen hit the malls don't worry you know because people might think oh well you know a crowded mall that would be a place for terrorists to come in with a suicide bomb or or something like that and president obama wants to make sure that the american economy isn't disrupted that people don't decide not to shop as if that's our economy which of course in a pathetic way it is, but that's not really an economy. An economy is not people buying stuff, going to the mall and buying things. The real economy is the ability to make all the things that are being purchased, right? That is the economy. It's the, it's the output. It's the factories. It's the investments and the savings and the knowledge and everything that is required to produce all the things that are on those shelves, that's what the economy is all about. It's not about just picking them off the shelves and, and driving them home, right? A any society can do that. I mean, if stuff is there, right, anybody can buy it, right? You know, the key is to create it in the first place. That is the hard part. That is the difficult part. The easy part is, you know, bringing it home. It's like, what's the hard part? Eating the meal or preparing it, cooking it, uh, you know, getting all the ingredients together, you know, that that's difficult. Just showing up at a restaurant and somebody sets the plate down in front of you and you eat it and you claim that that's the, that was the most difficult part of the process. I mean, all the things that went into putting that meal on your plate. I mean, if there's an animal there, somebody had to, somebody had to hunt it down and kill it or so, you know, some, a lot of things had to happen, you know, uh, for that food to be on, on your plate. I mean, the vegetables had to be grown. It had to be harvested. I mean, all sorts of things had to happen. A lot of work. Just eating it, that doesn't require anything at all. Anybody, you know, anybody could do that, right? So to say that the American economy, to define it by the act of shopping, is, is ridiculous and in and of itself shows you right, how, how far the, the science of economics has gone from, from being any type of science to being sheer, you know, like science fiction. You know, it's, you know, it, they say economics, it's a social science. It didn't even, today it didn't even a science. It's just, it's, it, who, it's nothing. It, it's, it's like, it, it's like um, astrology. Is astron how, how, how similar is astrology to astronomy? There's no similarities other than the fact that they both somehow use stars. There's stars in astronomy and there's stars in astrology. But that's it. Other than that, there's no similarities at all. And so today, what passes for economics really has nothing in common with legitimate 
economics. But getting back to uh, shopping and, uh, you know, and, and Good Friday and your Christmas, I want to, uh, you know, call everybody's attention again to the, my father's books that are available at shiftbooks.com. Now, we had run out of uh, The Biggest Con and um, the, the hoax, the great income tax hoax. And I did happen to find somebody who was friendly with my dad who had a few boxes of both. And so I was able to buy the boxes that she had. And these are brand new. You know, she had got them directly from my father. And so they're also uh, boxed up, new, never been, never been uh, read or opened. So we do have a few more boxes of, of those books. And again, I recommend them, The Biggest Con and The Great Income Tax Hoax. And The Great Income Tax Hoax was a book that I actually helped my dad do the research on. And it's a fantastic, you know, really explanation of taxation in America and the Constitution, well beyond just the income tax, a really good explanation of direct versus indirect taxation and, and what the founding fathers meant by it. Uh, and so uh, these books are, are, are great books from an educational perspective, certainly the biggest con. People ask me all the time, you know, how do where do you know how did I know what I what I know? Where did I learn my economics? Well, the biggest con, my father is 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 uh, is how I learned it, and so if you read the biggest con, uh, you'll have a pretty good idea of, of 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 you know what formed the basis of of my of my thinking, and it's a great it's a great book. But I've also added to the uh, to the library the Social Security Swindle, which I have the hardcover. All the other books I only have the soft covers. But I have the original hardcovers of the Social Security Swindle. And I only have two boxes. I don't have a lot of these, so there's not that many. Uh, and, but, and, and again, my father's subtitle on this is Social Security Swindle, how anyone could drop out, right? I'm not advising that you try to drop out of Social Security. I'm not advising that you try to stop paying your income tax. It's just to have this book to, to, to read about Social Security and to just have another book written uh, by, by my father, by Erwin Schiff. And of course, all these books are going to be signed by me. And I am also going to be adding to the bookstore for the first time, the Federal Mafia. Now, I've talked about the Federal Mafia. The Federal Mafia is my father's last book, and it is the book that was banned. The U.S. government literally banned that book. And it is the only nonfiction book to ever have been banned in the United States. I mean, it could be a trivial pursuit question, but it's the only one. There's only been two books in the history of the United States that were banned. And one of them was banned for obscenity. Right. And, you know, and, and my father's book is only obscene from the perspective that it points out, you know, all the illegal things that the government does. It's the government that's obscene. My father's just pointing it out. But they banned the book. And for that reason alone, you want to have a copy, you know, to have a copy of, of a banned book just so you can just have it as a display item, as a piece of Americana to say, hey, here's a book that was banned. It's the only nonfiction book to be banned, and it's the last book to be banned by the U.S. government. Now, I have brand new copies of this book, right? They've never been uh, touched. Now, my father had three editions. I don't have the first two editions for sale. I don't have any copies. But I do have some copies of the third edition. This is a 2003, the last printing of the book. And of course, he didn't. He stopped printing them when the book was banned because he couldn't sell them. So there was no point in printing anymore because it was illegal for my father to sell the books. But he had printed up a bunch of them before 
the ban came into effect. Now, you can you can read the book for free. If you don't want to buy a copy of the book, and again, I don't have an unlimited number, but if you don't want to buy a copy, you could download it online for free and read it. The point is to just have the book because I think it's a great keepsake just to have, apart from reading it, to just have a copy of the book. I don't know if it's ever going to be worth something as a collector's item. I mean, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I mean, I wouldn't buy it thinking it's an investment that, oh, this thing is going to appreciate. Uh, but I think it's nice to have it, knowing that, you know, not everybody does. Not everybody has a copy of this book. And it's just something, a conversation piece, too, that you can say, hey, this, is a, this book was banned. But there's a lot of great information in the book uh, on the income tax. It really lays out, this is his last book that he wrote. So it had all of his thinking up until, up until that point. And he originally sold the book for $38. So it's a big book. It's paperback, but it's 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 trade paperback. It's a, it's a it's a big book. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of charts. There's a lot of reference material in there. And again, if you buy this book, right? How uh, the Federal Mafia? Do not buy it as a how-to book, right? Do not say, "Oh, Peter Schiff is advocating that I stop paying my income tax, and he sold me a copy of the Federal Mafia so I could take the advice in the book." That's not why I'm selling it to you. I'm, I'm, I'm advising that anybody who buy this book not follow my father's advice, right? I'm saying to buy the book so you can read it, so you can appreciate my father's position, and you can see his, the strength of his argument, right? And, and it's really laid out in a very compelling way, and you can say, hey, this guy wasn't a, a, a criminal. He really was a political prisoner. He was very sincere in what he believed, and I can see that in the, the, the logic with which he lays out his case in the federal mafia. But I also think that you should have a copy of the book just to have a copy of it, just to have a copy of Irwin Schiff's banned book. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly keeping a number of copies for myself because I want to have them. I'm going to give some to my kids, uh, but I have more than I need, you know, and I want to make sure that the books are out there and that my father's legacy is preserved and as many people as possible get exposure uh, to the book. But, you know, when you read the book, I would just, I would treat it carefully. You know, don't try to spill coffee on it. Uh, don't, you know, just, you know, be careful when you turn the pages. Because I think after you read it, you want to keep it in, in a mint condition. You want to have it so it looks like a new book. Just, you know, so it, it, who knows? Who knows 50 years from now, 100 years from now, you know, might the book have some value beyond the 45 bucks that I'm selling it for? And I'm selling it for a little bit more than uh, what it originally sold for 12 years ago, uh, but not much more. And look, I've gone online. I've seen these books offer for sale. Go to Amazon. There are people trying to sell them for thousands of dollars a copy, which is crazy. But a lot, all of my father's books are on Amazon for $100, $200 a book, a copy, right? Because people think, oh, you know, people want these books. There's not that many there. I've got books, and I'm not trying to sell them for hundreds of dollars a copy. I want to sell them at a price that will distribute them so people can afford to buy them. But I'm not giving them away. People say, why don't you give them away? Well, then I'd have no books. Everybody would take it for free. If I said, oh, sign up for a free book, there'd be no books. So the only way to make sure that the people who will value them uh, get them is to charge money for them. But I don't want to charge so much money as to be obscene. I charge just, you know, a, a, a very fair price uh, for, for a book. And, of course, all these books are autographed by me. So that adds any value. And by the way, what, what I am doing is I'm throwing in a copy of The Kingdom of Malls. I still have plenty of copies of The Kingdom of Malls. And I love that book. And I sell it for $25 a copy. 
But if you want to add it to an order, if you buy a copy of The Biggest Con, you buy a copy of The Federal Mafia, if you want to throw in a copy of The Kingdom of Malls, you can have an extra an ex a copy for $15 instead of instead of 25 Anyway, everybody, hope everybody has a, a great, uh, great Thanksgiving and uh, keep tuning in to The Peter Schiff Show for more of these podcasts. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They are all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold videocast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold videocast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com. There's so much factually incorrect information and underreporting by legacy media today. Shouldn't there be truth in media? Well, there is truth in media. Recently, a novel thought is now a reality with truthinmedia.com. Led by award-winning journalist Ben Swan, truthinmedia.com is the source for uninfluenced, reliable, fearless news where journalists pursue real questions, not conspiracies. Make truthinmedia.com your default browser's homepage today and get breaking news and commentary that speaks the truth to power. It's also where you can tune into The Peter Schiff Show every week. Visit truthinmedia.com today. That's truthinmedia.com. Access the Truth in Media RS feed by visiting truthinmedia.com forward slash feed.